If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to start in verse 27. I do like to make the note before we read read uh, with great regularity that uh, Christians have confessed a divine author, meaning the primary author of the scriptures is God himself. And the joy and the beauty and the wisdom of a divine author is that when he wrote this, he wrote it for you. Not only you, he wrote it for me and for everybody else in the room, but then all other Christians that have come before us after the days this was written and even those that will come after us, for it is God's revealed word. Um, The important point of that is that when you hear this read, this is God speaking to you. This is God's truth to you even this morning. Matthew 27, starting in verse 27, this is the word of God. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. And took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself! If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests The scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. Then we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was 
darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake. And what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God! There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Let's pray. Father, we are creatures of such weak faith. Would you change that now? Give us love for Christ. 
Amen. I think it's probably an experience many of us are familiar with in some fashion. Some of you have, I'm sure, actually experienced this moment. It's that moment where the young couple gets engaged, right? The young man asks the young lady to marry him, and he gives her the beautiful ring. And for the next days, weeks, months, maybe years, hopefully not, she has this moment of kind of wistfulness where she begins to admire this sparkly thing on her finger. And maybe she even in the middle of the night gets the phone out and puts the flashlight on the phone just to see how it sparkles in the light. You know the moment I'm talking about, right? It's this kind of wistful longing, the joy of contemplating the beauty of the gift but even more than the beauty of the gift, the love that it represents. It always amazes me. I'm, I'm a man that doesn't quite relate to those things, but to see the joy that can happen time after time after time after time after time again, hours spent enjoying the ring, pondering its beauty and its brilliance, In some sense, our task today, as we contemplate Matthew chapter 27, is to consider the beauty and the brilliance of the gift that that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Now, the challenge with a passage like this is that we've probably all read it a number of times, at least once, most of us, some of us in the hundreds a passage we know and love, and so it's easy for us to kind of maybe perhaps grow a little dull toward it. I would encourage us just to kind of frame out our mind as we think about it today as our task is going to be to admire the gift, but from one kind of very specific function or perspective, I guess. This one may be one that some of the boys might relate to a little bit more. To study it, this passage from the perspective or the way that we would admire one of the great battles in history. Right? Historians, we've, we've studied Gettysburg, Normandy, study Hannibal taking elephants over the Alps. How did he do that? The Peloponnesian War, some of the stuff that happened there in Greece where they would put the ships together and march across the ship. Unbelievable. We, we marvel at the battle tactics and the wisdom that their commanders possessed. Our task today, as I'm going to do this, hopefully God willing, is for us to consider the beauty of Jesus, the greatness of the gift, but by specifically contemplating the battle tactics that Jesus employs. The battle tactics that Jesus employs, what he does to win. Well, maybe he does win. Maybe he doesn't. We'll see in the passage. First thing first, you have to look at this. Verses 32 through 44, this first section as the ESV has it kind of chopped up. We could even add the previous paragraph that I added in from last week's sermon. Christ employs the tactic of being hated by men to be reviled, to be despised, to be rejected. 
by man. The passage we pick up today, verse 32, starts with Jesus having been beaten. In verse 26, he's scourged, that's he's beaten with a whip in a way that is beyond devastating and destructive. It was a beating that was designed to leave you permanently maimed. And that was not the kind that you healed from. It was the kind that you bore in your body for the rest of your life. It was designed not to kill you, but to ruin you forever. Jesus undergoes that. Then verses 27 through 31 that we saw, he's then further beaten and abused. He has the crown of thorns jabbed on his head. He's beaten with the reed staff. He's mocked and rejected. By verse 32, it's the beginning of the crucifixion, and as they begin to escort him from the governor's headquarters out to the hill, he's actually too weak to carry any part of his cross. You have to think the blood loss between his back and his head was so profound. I mean, remember, this, he's been up all night at this point. A false trial, he's been awake praying, he's been teaching for the previous 12 hours prior to that. The man is physically exhausted, he was physically exhausted, even prior to suffering. Verse 33, they take him out to the place of the skull to Golgotha where they begin the crucifixion. Crucifixion is in many ways, the single most torturous way that humans have ever devised to kill a person. If you've studied it or know anything about it, it's unbearably cruel because you die actually of suffocation. Hands were nailed to a crossbeam, feet were nailed to a post, and when it was dropped in, usually it dislocated both of your shoulders. So the only way that you could breathe The only way you could open your diaphragm enough to draw air into your lungs was to either pull yourself up on dislocated shoulders or to push yourself up on feet nailed to a stake. The Romans were notorious if they were intending to be exceptionally cruel. They would actually even nail a a small board below the gentleman's feet so that he would have something to push off of to prolong his suffering and misery. It was designed to force a person to the full extreme of mental agony until they got to the point where they no longer considered life worth living and suffocated to death. It was not execution. It was torture. You've heard it before, but there's a reason why Rome made it illegal to do to their citizens. Rome, the picture of mercy and grace, said this is a fate too terrible to be given to our citizens. It can only be given to others. Like Jesus, the Lord of life. And while he's suffering this section, the reoccurring theme of interaction is not one of pity, that you would show to any human that would have to go through such a a horrible experience to be tortured in such a fashion, to be murdered in such a horrible way. Not pity, but mocking ridicule. 
Verse 34, they offer him wine to drink. Here, the, again, significance is not the alcohol. That's more of what was just common to drink in the day when your water source is constantly bugged with pathogens and such. Wine is the alcohol keeps it safe to drink. But here they do something intentionally to it. They mix it with gall intentionally to make it bitter and nasty. So a man who's at this point been tortured for a substantial portion of the night, who's likely at this point bleeding to death, who would have been unbearably thirsty, is given something so foul. He tastes it and can't drink it. It's disgusting. And we hear this and think, man, what a... What an awful thing, and and how can we appreciate this? As an intentional battle strategy, it seems like he's just being victimized, which he is. But being victimized in a very specific fashion. Psalm 69, 21, written hundreds of years prior. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And this is the first kind of like mm, moment we have in the text. Where we see Christ suffering horribly, fulfilling prophecy. 35, that here, slightly out of order, they've got him crucified at this point and they begin to take his garments. He's crucified naked. His shame is taken. I mean, his dignity is taken from him, left with shame and shame alone. And in verse 35, his garments are divided up. They begin to gamble for his clothes right beneath the cross. And again, we think, man, what a tactic to be victimized in such a way. Psalm 22, 17 through 18. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. When it comes time to talk about prophecy, that is about as specific as you possibly could conceive. It's amazing. The crowd doesn't realize it. The Romans don't realize it. The Jews don't realize it. Jesus does. That even as He suffers, they're fulfilling the promises of God. Verse 37. I mean, you want to talk about misreading the room, right? misunderstanding who you're up against. They put a sign up intended to mock him and instead actually proclaim the truth. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. What a perfect description. Amen. That's exactly who he is. Thirty-eight. The Lord of life is rejected and reviled by men that not only is he being victimized, not only is he in the process of being murdered, he's being treated as a common criminal. He's the Lord of life. The way, the truth, and the life. The one who has done no wrong. And yet he suffers. 
39. Again, it's so specific, it's almost laughable. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, throwing back his own teaching to him, Psalm 22, 7, and all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. It's literally the same words. You see, what's happening here is his enemies think they're winning. They think we finally got him. We finally got Jesus, this inconvenient, poor, obnoxious teacher that's been a fly in our ointment for years. We finally got him. We've been trying to kill this guy for a long time now. Not realizing that every step of the way, Christ is victorious. Christ wins every step of the way, even as they mock him in verse 39. They ridicule him in the exact ways that Christ himself prophesied a thousand years prior. The Word of God being fulfilled by the living Word of God. In verse 40, they begin to throw his own teachings back to him, thinking, ha, 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 we'll prove to you exactly how wrong it is. And in reality, they're literally explaining what's going to happen in the next chapter. You would destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days. Yeah, that's literally in the process of happening. Jesus is dying. He's going to be raised again. Save yourself. And this is where you see the tragedy. The mistake that they've, they've misunderstood, the rejection that mankind is putting upon Christ is that they mistakenly think Christ is in the business of saving Himself instead of saving us. It's never been about Jesus protecting Himself. It's been about Jesus protecting you. And Jesus protecting me. Even as they mock him, they fulfill Psalm 42.10. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, where is your God? It's so bad. The ridicule and shame, the derision. It's so bad that in verse 44, the robbers being crucified with him join in. I don't know what kind of ridicule is not being mentioned in the text. I'm sure there's more. But for the other fellows who are getting crucified to start mocking him, you know it's bad then. I'm just going to go out on a limb. If I were ever to be crucified, that would be a fairly all-consuming endeavor for me. Probably wouldn't be in the mood to mock anybody next to me. It has to be bad. What's being laid out is a, a presentation of uh, the very Son of God, God Himself, being rejected by creation itself. This is how John deals with it at the beginning of his gospel. He presents it as you know, Jesus, the agent of creation, stepping inside creation, and creation rejects Him. That would be a bad enough place to stop, man. That's horrible. What a point of grief that 
the Lord of life would endure that. The problem, and I mean this with every bit of the seriousness I can say, that verses 32 through 44 is the easy part. It's the easy part. Verses 32 through 44 is the easy part because Christ at that point is being rejected by man. He's suffering in the body, but in what comes in verses 45 through 49 is far worse. Here, not rejected by man, but rejected by God Himself. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. We don't actually have description what this means, but we know in this geographical region, it's not the entire world, but in this geographical reason, for some reason, the Lord gives darkness for three hours. Just like Amos 8 says that it would. And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Just like he said he would. Three hours of darkness in the middle of day. This is noon to three o'clock. Showing even the land itself, showing the Jews, showing the Romans that God was joining in in rejecting of Jesus. That God was joining in, turning His back on the Christ. That God was joining in. Separation from Christ Jesus. Verse 46, Jesus cries out, quoting Psalm 22. He's been meditating on it the entire time. It's amazing how many different verses are fulfilled here. This one is fulfilled in its speaking. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what's happened. That on the cross at this point in time, in this point in space, Christ Jesus has taken the sins of all of His people upon Himself. He's become our sin incarnate. And now in this moment, in these hours, is undergoing not just the rejection of God, but the wrath of God itself. When we talk about it, we say this in the creed all the time, He descended into hell. This is it. You get the sense even creation itself is grieving. The sun goes out. Verse 47, he 
is again further mocked by the people. Then pretending like he's calling Elijah, using it as an opportunity to further ridicule him. He's not calling Elijah. They know that. The grammar would have been obvious even to them. And so what do they do? Recognizing he's probably thirsty, they go get a sponge, give him a little bit of water, a little bit of wine to drink. Here again, fulfilling Psalm 22, verses 14 through 15, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus, fulfilling prophecy. We have a long way yet to go, but important to note. What's taking place here kind of theologically is that the entirety of the wrath of God for every sin ever committed by the people of God is being experienced by Him in those hours. The entirety of the wrath of God. Not partial. Not like, oh, he's having a bad day. Yet, no, he's having the worst day in human history. The entirety of the wrath of a perfectly just, all-powerful, perfectly creative God was being poured out on the Christ. And friends, it is imperative that we are reminded it's wrath that we deserve. That little lie that you told last week that you're like, mm, it wasn't that bad. That's what you deserve. Those hateful thoughts that you harbor in your mind toward your spouse or your children or your boss or your Enemies, if we have those in 2022. The sin, the judgment that you deserve is being placed upon Him. And if we were going to stop the story here, this is even more baffling. What's the battle plan? (laughs) To lose to man and to lose to God. To be rejected by man, to be punished by God. It's intriguing that humanity at this point throws the worst that humans have to offer at Jesus. This is the worst that they could treat a person in this time. And then interestingly, God does the same. The worst that He could treat him in His wrath in totality. Complete and utter destruction. Until you get to verse 50. One of the most significant sentences uttered in human history. 
Jesus cries out again. And with a loud voice, yields up his spirit. There's a bit to notice here. This is the turning point in human history. This is the thing that we've been building to since Genesis 3. This is the moment everything changes. Because of the grammar. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and the Romans took his life from him. No. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and the Jews took his life from him. No. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and the cross took his life from him. No. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and God took his life from him. No. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and executed the plan he had had all along in perfection. He achieves total victory by losing. By dying. By perishing. Now, it's an amazing sentence as you contemplate this because, again, this is Christ in charge. We said from the beginning, consider this like a a military battle. This is the tactic of them all. For the Messiah to fulfill prophecy, to live a perfect life, and then for him to die. He has to give up his own life. They can't kill him. I don't know if you realize that. They're not actually powerful enough to put the Lord of life to death. That's why he gives it up. And what happens, and this is one of those parts of the scriptures that we've read many times, but I I think sometimes, humbly, maybe we've not paid close enough attention to this part. Everything that follows is victory. Jesus dies in verse 50, and what happens? Everything after it is victory. First, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, for those that know your Bible history, this is referencing a curtain all the way back in Exodus 26. This was the curtain that separated God from his people so that you could not know God directly, so that he had to be afar, so that he had to be removed, so that he had to be away, so that there was no closeness between God and man. And Jesus in his death immediately eradicates that gap. This is what happens when you have the man, the Son of God, saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because the Father and I are one, you may now know God and know Him closely. Victory has been accomplished. This is such a profound victory. It alters the very order of creation. (laughs) What happens? He dies and the whole earth is like, it's time to freak out. (laughs) 
The curtain separating God is torn in half, and the earth immediately goes into convulsions. This is reminiscent of Psalm 114, Psalm 97, where it describes the mountains reacting to the presence of God. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. My favorite is in verse, uh, Psalm 114, where it describes them like rams. The hills skipped like lambs. Have you ever seen lambs bouncing around newborn? That's what describes the mountains as doing in the presence of God. Jesus has won, and the earth itself is celebrating. Earthquakes, rocks split open, the world freaking out. And then, oh yeah, by the way, dead people just start coming alive. That's a bit odd. Death is so defeated in this moment that it's contagious. And Christians nearby just start raising from the dead. I love this, and it even has to note in verse 53, like, Coming out of their tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city. Do you imagine how long it took them to get all those people out of the tombs? Like some of them are like, yeah, you gotta let me out. Can you imagine the person like walking into grief? You know, you're like, oh, I miss, you know, I miss my mom. You walk in and hear a noise coming. You're like, oh, this is not okay. And then your neighbor walks out who's been dead for three years. What's going on? The victory is so complete. God is reconciled to man. Man is reconciled to God. The created order is altered and death itself is obliterated. Death can't win over Jesus. Death can't win over his people and his people start being raised everywhere. And in verse 54, you have one of the most like kind of obvious statements in history. I love this. The guards watching were like, hmm, that's different. Truly, this was the Son of God. Now understand, what they're stating here is not a statement of fact. This is a statement of faith. This is the statement of watching men who were spiritually dead be brought to life the same we watched men who were physically dead be brought to life. Men who were just a few sentences prior mocking him are now serving him. Those who were reviling him are now worshiping him. Those who were hating him are now loving him. Those who were dead have been made alive. Friends, that victory didn't stop then. It wasn't like, wow, that's a nice day. Cool. Too bad it doesn't happen today. See, this is the beautiful part about this book has been saying that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he never changes. And his relationship toward his people is one of love and it is one of victory. And that has never stopped. God is still in the business of bringing people from death into life. 
And that's in both senses. In the sense of physical death, some of us grieve. We grieve those that we love that have passed on. We grieve those that have departed from our presence in Christ. We grieve the loss of those who have died before us. And friends, because of verse 50, death does not win. Jesus does. If that person is in Christ and you are in Christ, you will be together again. Nothing can stop that. God is no less victorious today than he was back then. I will also say secondly, in that spiritual sense, We know from one of the other Gospels that one of the the men being crucified next to him is converted in the crucifixion process. What an amazing idea that is. But this centurion and the other guards with him, we don't know how many. These are the first conversions of the Christian era, so to speak. The first of billions that would follow. Countless numbers that would follow. And friends, he still does it today. Bow the knee. Bow the knee before the Lord. Find victory in Christ. Verses 55 and 56 are in some ways kind of feel like add-ons, right? Like, well, I'm story into there. I mean, that's a pretty good spot to stop. Chapter doesn't. Maybe the, sermon, maybe the sermon should, but it doesn't either. 55, you have also many women there looking from a distance. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Joseph the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And again, we kind of use those as throwaway verses. No, this is substantially, this is incredibly significant. Christ Jesus is so victorious that he changes people. That in the midst of his crucifixion, in the, in the midst of him being treated so horribly, while people didn't know if his disciples would receive the same sort of treatment, all of his disciples, save one, really scatter. And by this point in the story, we have a handful of faithful women, one of whom, when we, when we meet her in the text, was possessed by demons and healed by Christ. You get to see kind of, again, what the transformative power could do. You have three women who are, by the world standards at this point, nobodies, who are willing to stand up to the fear of Rome to be with their Jesus. To make sure that they get to spend time with Him. To make sure they are there. Faithful saints. What a proof of the victory of Christ. I think some know this story. I almost dread to tell it. I was guest preaching at another church a number of years ago. My closing illustration of my sermon was um, there are few things that you get to see that are quite as powerful 
as an aging saint die well. I've seen a lot of things in my ministry, but there's probably nothing that is more powerful and more moving to me than to watch an aging saint die well. I finished my sermon on that point, and I walked out of the pulpit, and I walked down and sat to my row, and we stood up to sing the hymn before communion. And the man two seats behind me had a heart attack. That was his head hitting the pew, and he went out into the aisle. I thought that was it. I mean, I had just said that, but do I believe that? Now, God in his mercy, man turned out to be fine. In fact, actually went through the line to get the fellowship meal food before I did, which was shocking. Don't know how that happened. Had to stop church in the middle and go in the other room and pray. I had to have a little moment to recompose my emotions. Don't overlook the victory that these women represent. Faithful Christians in the face of tremendous difficulty. Now, if this were a movie, this would be the point where we say, yay, the good guys won. I'm so glad the story, it was a fake death. He's not actually dead. It's our favorite part in all the movies where it looks like the good guy dies and we just have to wait and find out, oh, he's not dead. Yay. Problem here. He's dead. In fact, actually, that's the significance that we get to see in verses 57 and following. This isn't just kind of a simulation. This, is, this isn't a, it's not a play. It's not a telenovela. It's, it's not a, a, a drama you watch on television on a Saturday afternoon when you're bored and have nothing to do. Joseph of Arimathea shows up and gets the body. He wraps it in clean linen and buries it in his tomb. Buries the body of Christ Jesus in the tomb. And in doing so, fulfills Isaiah 53, verse 9, another prophecy. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Again, fulfilling Scripture. It's not a fake death. It's a real death. In fact, actually, it's such a real death that the next day, even the unbelievers show up and say, by the way, he kind of warned us that he wasn't going to stay dead, so let's make sure they can't fake it. Roll a stone in front. Seal it. Set guards. Make it impossible to fake So if the story has a happy ending, we know it's true. So if Jesus doesn't stay dead, we know he is who he says he is. And friends, the challenge that's presented before us today, you know what happens in the next chapter you know what happens next week. (laughs) You know it's true. So the challenge comes for us, for those that know the end of the story, that know it's true. What do we do? Well, first, we bow the knee. 
We stop pretending like we're God. We stop pretending like we're in charge of our lives. We stop pretending like we know all of the answers and acknowledge Christ and Christ alone is the Lord of life who has conquered death, something I could never do on my own. In Him, I need not fear death. In Him, I need not fear God. In Him, I need not fear man. For His victory is mine, and it is freely given. Bow the knee. Two, cultivate some worship. Friends, I I recognize it's a very easy thing for us to grow lazy. An object at rest tends to stay at rest. And a heart at rest tends to stay at rest. In fact, actually, we might even say a heart that is not actively working to grow in love of Christ will always cool. Worship is not something that just kind of ends up happening by default in most cases. It's something that has to be grown. It's like plants almost. Soil tilled, seeds sown, plants watered, fruit harvested. Your heart has to be worked on. For some of us, honestly, we wonder why our Christianity seems a bit cool, a bit shallow, and we spend no effort in love. No effort and delight. And then thirdly and finally, I'll end with this. Passages like this I appreciate because they show us just how mighty He is. Jesus wins. It was never up for negotiation. It was actually never up for doubt. It it was never non-determined. He would always win. And he wins through the most spectacular fashion by losing it all. Being rejected, smitten by God and afflicted. And the victory that he has won can be ours. Might it be that we might just marvel just a little bit today at the victory that he gives you, that he himself has won with his body and with his blood? Father, help us in our unbelief Fill us with love of Christ and where we have not bowed the knee before Him. Oh God, would You send Your Spirit to strengthen us even to do that. That Christ, who is so lovely, would occupy our minds. Amen.